This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. If you need auto parts but you cannot get to the store just yet, simply head on over to O'ReillyAuto.com. You can buy your parts online and then pick them up in any of the 4,500 O'Reilly Auto Parts stores nationwide. No shipping costs, easy returns, and convenient pickup on your schedule. Shop your way for the parts you need at O'ReillyAuto.com. O'Reilly Auto Parts. Better parts, better prices every day. If you tell yourself, oh, I'm going to read 500 books this year, and then you feel like a failure because you only read 100, well, 100 is a great number. What you should say is, hey, I'm going to read a page a day or 15 minutes a day or something that it's almost hard not to be able to do, and then that's how you create that momentum, and then that's how you build habits. Cracking. Welcome to the Jim Rome Podcast. It may be Super Bowl week, but the side hustle does not sleep. And my guest for F68 is best-selling author and media strategist Ryan Holiday. My man is a fascinating guy. He's a best-selling author of books like Trust Me, I'm Lying, The Obstacle is the Way, and Ego is the Enemy. He is the former director of marketing for American Apparel. He's an in-demand advisor and speaker for the best and the brightest in both business and in sports. And did I mention he is just 31 years old? I had a chance to talk with Ryan before, but never long form. This is a really different conversation, but it is a thought-provoking one. It is awesome. I know you'll enjoy it. Pot Up, F68 with Ryan Holiday starts right now. Ryan, I've got to say, it's so great to be able to talk to you, and especially in a format like this, but I don't know what's better. The fact that you and I have a mutual friend in Virginia Tech head basketball coach Buzz Williams, and he came on the show recently, and we were able to talk you up, or the fact that Grant Napier, Ryan, guest hosted the show for me while I was on vacation, and you have a connection to him as well. I've got to ask you that. What is your connection to Napier? I mean, I wish I had a connection to Grant Napier, but I grew up listening to his radio show every day after middle school and high school because I grew up in Sacramento, and one, there's not that much to do there, and two, I was a diehard Kings fan, and he is the voice of the Kings. All right, so if you know him like that and you've got that kind of connection, maybe not a personal connection, but you know him as a host, I don't know if you heard it that day, and maybe if I can borrow 90 seconds of your time, did you happen to hear what a caller named Brad in Corona, he's a legendary caller to my program, what he did to Napier on my show? Have you heard no. this? Okay, I think it's going to be a good investment of your time, Ryan. Listen to this. This is Brad in Corona calling Napier on my show. I did some Googling on you right now, and I have to say – your wife is incredibly good-looking. What a smoke show of a wife you have, Grant. <laughs> I would definitely uh, concur with that. Like, That's one thing we agree with. woman is legally blind or you're some sort of I asked, Hey, listen, or... when I asked her to marry me and she said yes, the first response was, what is the name of your seeing eye dog? So, yes, she is blind. Does she owe you money, Grant Napier? She's got to be attracted to you for something other than your looks and or talent. Hey, serious question, though, for you, and you can answer this when I'm done. Uh, what kind of dimly lit bar lighting did you have them install in your house 
chance to fool your wife into thinking you two are in the same league all these years. Like, don't get me wrong. It's a genius move what you're pulling off here, having a job where you have to get up and leave the house when it's still dark outside. Then you work until it's dark outside again. Then you come home to your flattering bar lighting and your really good-looking wife who's disproportionately more attractive than you are. <laughs> I mean, I'm not saying you're ugly, Grant. I'm just saying I feel sorry for the makeup people at CBS this morning. You're probably not the best canvas for an artist to paint on, if you know what I mean. These people are literally putting lipstick on a pig when you walk into the studio, Grant. Thoughts and prayers of the makeup team at CBS. Best case scenario, guys, is when you're done with him, he looks like what would happen if Ron Howard got a bunch of Botox. So <laughs> this is pretty much as good as it gets. How did you land this beautiful woman, Grant? You must have $10 million in a crank the size of that microphone you're talking about. <laughs> so, Ryan, I really hate to do that. I've got so much that I want to talk to you about. But did you ever hear anything like that on Grant Napier's show when you grew up in Sacramento and you dialed him in? Well, that's what I was going to say is that, that Grant must have either been in a very good mood or uh, been very humble that day because when, when Grant Napier wants to light up a caller, uh, I've, I've, I've seen very few people be able to destroy someone as well as, uh, as well as he could. That was like my favorite part of the show. I don't know. That, that Ryan, or maybe he's a stoic. Yes. Maybe he is a stoic. That's got, that's, that's got to be it. Uh, he, he was letting him off easy, certainly. I think so. All right, so, Ryan, looking at your career, you've had this amazing run now with seven books, numerous bestsellers. You're in great demand. You're still just 31, but you got to take me back. You started a blog in 2006, but your first book did not come out until the summer of 2012. That means, essentially, you wrote for free every day for the better part of six years. What was that time in your life like? Well, it was, it was certainly busy. Um, you know, I think pe- people have this idea that, that writing is this something you, you just decide you're a writer, and then obviously you go to school, and then they teach you how to write. I, I found that it's, it's really the opposite. The, the best writers that I like reading have had unusual experiences um, or, or gone out and sort of learned something about the human condition that allows them to then communicate in their writing. Like, look, if Keith Richards' memoir was written in crayon and every word was misspelled, it would still be a really good book, right? Because he's lived this incredible life. And so what I did in that period, obviously I was getting better at the craft, went out and lived my life. I did interesting, unusual things. I was a one of the youngest, you know, sort of directors of marketing of a publicly traded company. I started my own business. I worked for all these interesting people. I was a research assistant for a great writer. So I just went on and I did stuff that, that then led into my first book, which is sort of an expose of the media system. I couldn't have done that as an outsider or as, you know, uh, a, a graduate of a writer's workshop. It, it came out of my experiences, probably in the same way that, you know, a stand-up comedian has to, has to experience life to be able to tell jokes about it. A, a writer has to have something that they're communicating to the reader. All right, so now speaking of school, you dropped out of college at 19. Now, obviously, college is not for everybody, and you obviously have done very, very well. You've, it seems to me, though, you think very deeply. You have studied some of the world's deepest thinkers. Why was college not for you? For instance, what were you dealing with at that time? What types of things were you thinking about? Yeah, I mean, I remember, I remember thinking that college was going to be this amazing thing. And, I, and obviously, coming from Sacramento, it's not like I was in this community of, of, of sort of creative people. And, you know, that it's a government town. And, and I don't think there was... 
I don't think, uh, you know, I thought back about this not that long ago. It's, I don't think there was any of my parents' friends who didn't have a salaried job for a living. So uh, I'm sure this is like this for you. It's not like you grew up knowing, knowing uh, a bunch of uh, a bunch of people who did what you wanted to do. Sure. And so there's that, you, you, can, you can think that like college, um, I don't know if you saw the movie Lady Bird, but it's actually about Sacramento as well. Like for her, she wants to go to New York because that's where like literary people and, and theater people are. And that's where there's, she's going to meet people like her. And I had this idea that it was going to be like that. And then, you know, like the first day of college, I got assigned a group project or something. And I just thought, man, this is like high school, but more expensive, you know? And, and so, uh, I mean, I loved, I loved parts of college and I don't think I'd be who I was if I didn't go to it at all. But I just realized that the path that I wanted to go down was going to be a little bit more untraditional. My man, you know, the thing is, though, you, you didn't go to New York. You went to Riverside. And I I speak, I say this as somebody who was born in Los Angeles. I've spent my entire life in Southern California. I don't know. Do you think maybe this is more of a, and I don't want to get on the wrong side of the people in Riverside. Sure. Might this be more of a 909 thing than a college thing? I'm sure it was part of it. But, I mean, to me, uh, it was, it was you know, five hours closer to Los Angeles. <laughs> That I grew up, so that was a huge improvement, right? And and it was. I mean, I I did meet uh, right like I, I I met writers. I was uh, some of the professors there were actually published writers. You know, like I, I I was much closer to the action than I was originally. So I'm not saying you people shouldn't make that move at all. And, and sure, maybe I would have been happier at a different school. And uh, I I partly went there because of, of a girl, uh, which which Always. is not not uncommon. But. Uh, I, I think for me it, it was just it was just that uh, I I thought maybe this was a thing you could go and get a degree in, but ultimately it's not. I get that. Now listen, I'm skipping ahead a little bit, but you mentioned like you have this notion, Ladybird, like I'm going to go to New York. That's where the literary folks are. Well, you did that. Like when things, and I'm skipping ahead, but when things started to really, really pop for you, you did in fact go to New York because that probably seemed like the right place and the right thing for somebody like you. What was that experience like? Yeah, I mean, after my my first book came out and it sold well and I made some money, I thought, oh, well, obviously writers live in New York City. Um, that's where I should move. And, and my now wife and I moved there. And I found it is an extremely hard place to be a writer for a weird reason. There's so much stuff going on there that's adjacent to writing. I've never been invited to more parties. I've never had more cool dinner invitations. There's never been more stuff going on that was part of the scene but I found that to be at odds with the, the part about sitting alone in a room quietly doing, doing the work. And so, I, I mean, I imagine this is true. I imagine it'd actually be hard to be a basketball player in New York City just be, from the media attention, but also there's just so much to do and so many opportunities that it becomes very hard to say no and focus on the, the thing that got you there in the first place. And so... Um, I'm, I'm not. I'm not a not a big New York City fan in in retrospect, um, but I'm I'm also less of a fan having sort of tried that and and see. I'm I'm less of a fan of the idea that you've got to go to a specific place to do uh, any job. I I think people. 
people should go where they're best, not where the most people are. A really interesting point. Really interesting point. Now, that first book that you mentioned, Trust Me, I'm Lying, Confessions of a Media Manipulator, I've heard you talk about how that was a book that you had to write. Why was that a book you had to write? What did you mean by that? Well, so I've been the director of marketing of this very controversial company. It's called American Apparel. I had sort of been besieged by a number of scandals, some real, some not real. I'd worked with a, a lot of other sort of provocateurs. I'd done a bunch of stuff that had gotten attention. And what I sort of saw accidentally was like how the media system really works, how, you know, uh, a random tweet can end up being a headline story on CNN, how, you know, a rumor can get turned into um, a fact that then people are responding to and turn it into a fact in real life. Um, and so, so I felt like I sort of peeked behind the curtain, and although I wanted to write about all these other things, my sort of urgent experiences in that space were worth writing about. And I'm, I don't want to, you know, sort of pat myself too much on the back, but, you know, in 2011, I sat down to write a book about, essentially, about how fake news is made. If, if anything, I was probably a little bit early, um, but everything that I talked about in that book is sort of what we're seeing now. And my, my hope was that um, I might be able to prevent some of it uh, I'm not sure how much that really happened, but I, I was tr- I was trying. I felt like I had something to say that was worth publishing for the first time. Ryan, I can pat you on the back. You were way ahead of your time. You were way ahead of your time and prophetic in writing that book. Now, based on an answer you just gave me, I know that you're also not big on doing what's expected of you. So then you do this book, and you did the book, and it did really, really well. And then ultimately, you come back to your publisher and say, you know what I really want to do now? What I want to do now is I want to write about ancient philosophy. I want to write about the Stoics. I'm curious, what was the publisher's reaction to that, especially based on or coming in the aftermath of what you did the first time out? Yeah, they were, let's say they were not super excited. Mm. Uh, you know, when you say, hey, I'd like to write a book about an obscure school of ancient philosophy, <laughs> you know, they're not right. like, hey, that's going to be a huge bestseller, and, uh, and, and, and we can see this resonating really well in professional sports. <laughs> like, that would be insane. And so, you know, they, 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 they were, uh, they, basically, they offered me as little money as they could without hurting my feelings, and, and, you know, I, I think this is another reason, you know, not to, let's say, live in, in New York City or, or to, to, to sort of manage your life, lifestyle properly, is that if you're a creative person and you want to take risks, um, you have to be able to put yourself in a position where you can take those risks. I was able to take that deal because I'd been successful and I'd set my life up in a way that I, I didn't need the book advance to live. And so uh, I ended up writing that book, um, which was this sort of surprise hit in a lot of ways, and it was a very different track. But you can see how, and I see this with other authors that I know and creative people, is you sort of get, you almost typecast yourself, and, and you, you can't do a different thing because if that different thing doesn't work, you don't know how you're paying your mortgage the next month. You know, I should have said it, Ryan. The book is very close to you and actually very close to me. You and I have talked about this book on my radio program. The Obstacle is the Way is one of my favorite books ever. It's it's a brilliant, brilliant, brilliant book. And I found myself going back to it and picking it up time and time again. You know, before we talk about the, the really unexpected connection to sports, just so people understand what we're talking about, what did the Stoics think about obstacles? 
Well, the, the book is based on this line from Marcus Aurelius. He's the emperor of Rome. He's the old guy in the movie Gladiator. Um, but, but basically what Marcus says is he says, the impediment to action advances action. What stands in the way becomes the way. And this is sort of a formula of Stoic philosophy, which is basically like we don't control 99.9% of what happens in the world. We don't control what happens to us, but we have this power to decide what we're going to do about it. We always decide how we respond. Right? We don't control that it's raining, but we decide to put on a jacket, let's say, um, or we decide to anticipate that it's going to rain and take you know, certain precautionary measures. We, we always can choose what we're going to do about something. And this sort of power, sort of not being emotionally reactive to things, having a lot of determination, having a lot of sort of inner strength, um, is, is, I think, a recipe and, and has been a recipe throughout history for greatness, whether it's on the battlefield, whether it's on the football field, whether it's in entrepreneurship or, or art, you know, sort of across all these different domains. You see not just like the, the sort of general themes of Stoicism pop up, but, but you know, many of the greatest you know, um, generals and leaders and, and artists of history have been students of the ancient Stoics. And, th- and that's sort of what I was trying to write about in the book. All right. So I would imagine, Ryan, that you thought that the message might resonate with business people, maybe people in the military, maybe the arts, but sports, sports was different. I'm curious, what was it like when you roll up on some old school coaches who were all about, you know, Xing and Oing and their schemes and you say, hey, hey there, I'm here to talk to you all about ancient philosophy. Were they receptive? What was that like? Well, you know, it, it was actually the opposite of that in a lot of ways. Like, the, the craziest thing was just the amount... So I, I wrote the book, and as you said, it was like, look, this obviously this is going to work in a business context, it's going to work in a military context, sort of tried and true. That, that's who I was writing for. And I remember I just started getting these emails from, from people in the front offices of football teams, a lot of strength and conditioning and mental skills coaches for different organizations. And then I, then I started, you know, seeing on Twitter, because you know, athletes seem to be on Twitter more than any of the other platforms, like a lot of DMs and, and tweets of people reading the book. And I, I realized, and, and I think this is somewhere that sports don't get enough credit, is that if, if these coaches were just sort of X's and O's guys, we wouldn't be seeing the sort of continued improvement that we're seeing. The, the reason that these that records keep getting broken and games keep getting better and better and athletes keep getting to do things that we don't think are possible. It's not as if these coaches have suddenly figured out better ways to play a game. Like, the rules aren't changing that much. What we're seeing is they, they're unlocking the sort of mental capacities and sort of strategic ways of thinking that, that, that just hadn't been tapped into before. Like, the, the human body can only get so strong, but... Uh, you know, how the human body bounces back from adversity or bounces back from an injury or, or any of that, that I think is where we've seen a lot of these, these really big breakthroughs in sports. And it makes total sense, one, that people who spend so much time on airplanes would read quite a bit, um, but two, that people who are looking for an edge wherever they can find it would be turning to, 
you know, a lot of these tried and tested formulas. No, you're so right. When you lay it out like that, it makes so much sense. And I remember my reaction to it, and I did the same thing. I, w- I went looking for you because I thought the book was so fascinating. So it should not surprise any that people like even the Patriots, as an example, they love the book. Now, the Patriots are notorious as an organization for kind of the way they hoard information. Now, that's not unusual. They do this in the NFL and a lot of other sports, but they never want to let anybody on the outside in, and yet you were able to gain entry what was that experience like, and did you get like any one-on-one time with Bill Belichick? Not, not Bill, but I, I got this email uh, pretty early on in the book's release, which I, I guess is sort of a, a sign of how they're always looking for an edge. I got a, an email from, from Mike Lombardi, who was a, a special assistant uh, to the Patriots. He'd formerly been the GM of the Browns. He'd, he'd worked with Bill for, for decades, and, and he had read the book, and he, he just emailed me, and he said he liked it, and he had some questions. And, and so we started talking, and he asked if I would send him more books, which I did. And, and we just sort of struck up this relationship. And, and I think from, from what I've gathered from him and from other people, this is kind of the process that, that the Patriots, but then all the great teams are going through, which is they're, they're just always looking for an edge. And they're always, they're all, like you said, they're always looking to go straight to the source. Like I was surprised at first it would be like, um, hey, like, why would the coach of an NFL team send an email to someone? Well, if that coach sends an email, which takes five seconds, and a relationship comes out of that, or a single idea, or even just a quote that is beneficial to the organization, that is a great return on investment. And so I think what you see is these coaches are always looking for people who are who have found, whether it's an academic, like Pete Carroll is really into uh, Angela Duckworth, who wrote about grit. And grit has sort of become a theme and an idea that has permeated the Seahawks organization from how they scout players to how they coach players to how they, you know, talk about difficulties on the team. And so the, these, these experts are always looking for new information and new ways of thinking that they can apply to the organization. And, and I think they also know, like, hey, uh, sports are, are, you know, sort of very popular, and if we send people an email that has the New England Patriots in the signature line, we'll probably get a response. Or, or if Alabama is in the signature line, and Nick Saban also had you in after that book dropped, I, I don't know, Ryan, if you had to guess, and I don't know when the last time you spoke to him was, you know, this is also about a conversation that you have with yourself as opposed to others. What kind of conversation, if you had to guess, do you think that Nick Saban was having with himself after a very public and humiliating beatdown in the national championship game against Clemson? What do you think that he does with that? And what would a Stoic do with that? Well, one of the things that I know uh, Coach Saban has taken from the book, because we've talked about it and I've heard him mention in interviews, is he has this idea of, uh, and, and I talk about it in the book too, this idea of an inner scorecard versus an outer scorecard. So the same... The, one of the reasons I think he's probably not super down on himself, he's not uh, beating himself up the way that, that maybe an ordinary person would be after that loss, is actually seen in the same reason why when he's beating down on another team, he doesn't seem to be particularly ecstatic or proud of himself. Right? So what, Saban has a, a very clear sense of what a football game should look like and how he expects himself to behave, his players to behave, what kind of performance he expects from everyone. And so that's what he's measuring himself and his players against. So sometimes you meet those standards and you win. 
sometimes you meet those standards and you lose. Um, but, but what you're really focused on is, is not that final score. You know, he talks about that idea of the process. I think the process helps you win, but the process also helps you um, recover from defeat. Like, in, in the way that, you know, Saban is famously uh, stepping out of victory parties to make recruiting calls. Right. He's probably also stepping out of the depression from losing to make recruiting calls. Uh. Like he's already he's already moving on to to the to the 2019 season, and and that's a that's a buffer from you know feeling like uh, feeling any one loss to. Uh, profoundly. You know, I could talk to you about your relationship with those organizations. You mentioned Pete Carroll. I'm fascinated by that, and I know that that organization is big on Angela Duckworth and Grit, but I do want to ask you about your 2018 book. It's a book called Conspiracy, and it's a really big swing, Ryan, in the sense that it's something totally different than anything you had ever done before. Why did you take that book on? And for those who don't know, maybe give us a brief synopsis. Yeah, I, I wrote this book about the, the billionaire Peter Thiel, who'd spent about a decade conspiring to destroy a media outlet who had outed him as, as gay um, many, many years before. And I, I, I think I wrote it, uh, one, I wrote it because it's a, an incredible story. Not my writing, the story itself is incredible. It's, it's almost, it feels like a plot from, from Shakespeare. Um, but but I wrote it because it was so different than the other books. Like um, I don't I I don't think you get better doing the same thing over and over again, especially if you've if you've had success in doing it a certain way. Because then you can you can sort of rest on your laurels. You can sort of fall into certain patterns. You can just do what people expect. And when I look at my career, it's. I see all the big jumps forward that I've made um, are usually at the result of some creative or professional risk. And so, I, one, I wanted to write a book just to, I wanted to write that book just to see if I could. Um, but I also wanted to, 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 to know that if I could, if I did come out the other side, whether the book sold one copy or a million copies, I would be a better writer for having tried. And, and I, I know, and again, if we go to this idea of inner or outer scorecard, the book has done well, and it, it, it was critically received quite well, and it's being turned into a movie, and it's been awesome. But um, what I actually, the inner scorecard part, the reason I decide the book is a success, um, and if it had sold zero copies, I'd still be able to say this, it's a success because... I'm a better writer coming out the other side. I can do things now that I maybe I could have done before, but I didn't. I didn't believe I could do. And I think that's a good when people are thinking about career decisions or thinking about making changes. You should kind of ask yourself, like, where am I? Like, don't take a different job just because it's going to pay you a little bit more. Maybe even take a job that's going to pay you a little bit less but you're going to learn a lot for having done so. I think that's how you end up where you want to end up in life. In other words, how much did you stretch? And this is something that you had never done before. I think I want to make a distinction, though, Ryan, here. In this case, the word conspiracy, and I appreciate what you just said. I think there's a lot that's really powerful in that. But in in this case, the word conspiracy does not necessarily mean what most think of when they think of that word. Normally, you think of conspiracy, you think of maybe an assassination. In right. this case, what does the word conspiracy mean? 
Yeah, so the more the more ancient word of uh, usage of conspiracy is 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 individuals acting in concert with each other to to do something. And and you know, like if you think of the legal definition of conspiracy, you you can you it can be a conspiracy to commit armed robbery or a conspiracy to 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 do just about anything. It, it means you and I decided to get together and do something. And so my definition of the book is that this was a conspiracy to sort of disrupt the status quo. He, like, he had been hurt by this media outlet that he then felt like was actively making the world a worse place. And so he teamed up with a bunch of people to do something about it in secret, one of those people being, of course, the wrestler Hulk Hogan. Um, and he, he filed this secret set of lawsuits that, that ultimately ended up bankrupting the media outlet that had outed him. But my, my, it, I'm, I'm using conspiracy in the more sort of secret, strategic sense, not the conspiracy to assassinate John F. Kennedy. Now, the thing is, Ryan, that's amazing to me is his process here. It's pretty unbelievable. Like, Gawker outed him against his wishes in 2007. What then was his strategy and his timeline for implementing his plan? I mean, the most incredible... So, so the, to sort of ruin the plot a little bit, basically, Peter ends up... This Peter Thiel, he ends up filing a lawsuit on behalf of Hulk Hogan uh, after the, the same website had, had run a stolen sex tape of Hulk Hogan. Um, and, uh, and, and it involves some crazy radio DJs and a whole bunch of other stuff. But basically this lawsuit, they file a $100 million lawsuit that ends up uh, bankrupting the company, um, and nobody knows that Teal is behind it. The, the incredible thing, the reason I say that, is Teal was outed by Gawker in 2007. The lawsuit he filed on behalf of Hulk Hogan was not filed uh, until October of 2012. And he didn't get a verdict until March of 2016. So if you think about the patience required there, he knows he wants to do something, but he waits for his chance. I mean, it's almost like this sort of quarterback uh, in the pocket. He's, he's, he's looking for the right passing, uh, passing route, but he's not seeing it. He's not seeing it. He's waiting for the second or the third option. He could get hit at any moment. And I think that's what's so incredible to me about Teal is this website had done something to him, and they were writing about him constantly. It, you, would, you would expect sort of an emotional reaction. You would expect a, a rich person, not to, a billionaire, not to have a lot of patience to just sort of sit around and wait for his best shot. But that's what he did. And, and ultimately, that's why he was successful where in, in something that so many people basically thought was impossible. Yeah, I mean, that process in and of itself is amazing because it took the better part of a decade. It took millions and millions of dollars, which a rich guy could do. I, I mean, Ryan, where do we come out on this? I mean, there, are there issues of freedom of speech and the Constitution, or did they get what they deserve? In other words, is this kind of unseemly and dark, or is it inspiring and admirable? It's, I think it's a little bit of both. I think one of, the, one of the problems we have as a society today is we try to put everything really cleanly in one box or another. Certainly there are some, some very alarming free speech issues at stake you know, when a billionaire is able to wipe a media outlet off of the planet. Um, but look, so, someone like yourself who, who's, who's controversial, who, who, who says what he thinks, um, who, who, who isn't afraid to sort of hold powerful people 
to account, you know, I imagine you wrestle with the distinction between punching up and punching down. And the way that you might talk about a professional athlete is probably different than how you talk about a high school athlete in some, you know, small school. And, and ultimately, where Gawker, it's like Gawker started as, a, as, as something that was very much like, hey, this is what the media is supposed to do. This is what free speech is supposed to protect. But when you're running stolen sex tapes, or when you are outing uh, uh, gay individuals against their consent, when you are when you are basically uh, running stories based on information that people are trying to use to extort other people, you've you've sort of ceased to be journalistic and become almost a, a kind of a media terrorist. And I think I think that was ultimately Teal's view. Um, I think he's I think he he raises some good points. Uh, I don't agree with it fully, but ultimately what I wanted to do in the book is sort of write about how this happened. So even if you think it's the worst thing that ever happened, um, you've got to you've got to at least understand how it happened if you want to prevent it from happening in the future. You bet. You know, it's amazing. You mentioned American Apparel, and you were the chief marketing officer for that company. But Ryan, you did so at the age of twenty. 20. Yeah. That's an amazing thing in and of itself. And, you know, a huge part, it seems to me, of the success of the company had to do with its extremely provocative, controversial, and award-winning ads, you know, featuring near-naked women, many of who work for the company. You work closely with the founder of the company to create the imaging and the branding. Were you surprised at the reaction and how well it looked? And what was that time like for you professionally? Well, I mean, it was strange. Uh, on the one hand, it it was an incredible opportunity to be able to do some of that stuff that young. You know, in retrospect, I sort of go, well, obviously, that's not the sign of a healthy company either, right? Uh, you know, when the, when the founder of a billion-dollar brand appoints a 20-year-old or 21-year-old in, in charge of his marketing, uh, maybe he was right in that instance and in that I feel like I did a pretty good job. But, you know... That's a pretty big gamble, and and there there are other times, you know, sometimes that you know, in retrospect, turned out to be litigated in various lawsuits where that same impulse, you know, did not did not go well for 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 the company either. So, I mean, I it, it was this sort of chaotic, dysfunctional, but also really exciting, you know, uh, creative time in my life. I I learned a ton about you know how stuff works. I also learned probably a lot more about how not to run a company, how not to run your personal life, you know, um, how, I mean, one, one of the things that I, I, I learned from that company was just, just because you're really good at, say, building a company doesn't mean you're really good at, at continuing to run that company. And, I, I, you know, I, I, watching the, one of the fastest growing retail brands in the, in the history of the business, go into double bankruptcy and, and, you know, ultimately sort of cease to exist, one of the things you take from that is like some, some humility and, and uh, a sort of a cautionary tale about, you know, what not to do. So it, it was a great experience, um, one, one that I, I also feel a bit fortunate to have emerged from unscathed. All right, so if you're 20 and you get that job, to your point, that you've got a gigantic company like that and you get that kind of responsibility as a 20-year-old, I have to ask, how did you pull that off? Did you use the briefcase technique or something else? And for those who don't know, what is the briefcase technique? 
Well, the briefcase technique is something I, I talk about in the conspiracy book. It, it, it's, uh, it's a pretty well-known technique, but it's just this idea of, you know, you, you have one of those meetings with an important person. Um, how many of us just sort of go into it? Oh, well, let's see how this goes. I think the people who, <clears throat> who end up with those opportunities, um, you know, look, a, a whole bunch of teams, just uh, NFL teams just interviewed new head coaches, the coaches that usually get hired are not the one who went in and said, so do you have any questions for me? They're the ones who went in with full binders of what they would do if they took over the Cleveland Browns or, or the Miami Dolphins or, or, or the Cincinnati Bengals. They're the ones that said, this is what I would do if you hired me, and here's why hiring me is going to work. You know, uh, there was a little bit of that in American Apparel um, in Probably not enough of it, or I, I, I might have been more successful. But I think, I, I think what I've taken from that lesson and what I've tried to do in my own life is that, look, like, you, you can't wing it. You're, you're a great coach, a great player, a great, you know, potential employee or collaborator. They have a plan. And even if that plan doesn't come to pass, it's the fact that they put together a plan uh, that separates them from, from everyone else. No, Ryan, before I let you go, you, you're a young guy and obviously very process-oriented, very disciplined, very focused. And I remember, you know, when I was that age especially, and, and by the way, even after that age, it was all about the thing, you know, the gig, the pursuit, just grind, grind, get after it, go after it. But then f- being a parent changes all that. You, you're a father now. How is fatherhood treating you, and what's that done to your process? Oh, man, you're, you're, you're totally right. Yeah, you, you realize that, uh, one— work doesn't compare, even the greatest work success doesn't compare to even sometimes like an ordinary evening at home. And then also that you've, by bringing this person into existence, you've, you've taken on an obligation that trumps your other obligations. I think, I think one of the things for me that being a parent has done is it's, it's slowed me down and forced me to be much more deliberate um, which has been really good. Like uh, I have to, I have to think about the shots that I'm going to take or the opportunities that I'm going to take on. I can't do everything I want, and then hey, if I burn out, you know, so be it. It's it's that there are consequences now. And I think the other thing that is being a parent sort of forces you to be present in a way that you know maybe other people get to via meditation or study or a lot of life experience, you know. You just, you just realize, like, parenting is not, it's not just, you know, making sure they're healthy and alive. It's like parenting is like, I have to sit here while you nap for the, la- the next hour because you fell asleep in the car, you know. Or parenting is, oh, you want to play in the dirt for four hours? Um, that's what we're doing now, you know. And I think that especially if you're successful, especially if you're good at what, you're, what you do, you can get really used to being in control all the time. And uh, in a way, that's unhealthy. I think it breeds ego. It breeds sort of uh, an unhealthy sense of your place in the universe. And, and I think, you know, however, even the president, well, maybe not this current president, but even the president is at the mercy of his kids' moods and what they want to do. And I think that's, that's very, uh, that, that's an, a healthy balance. We all are, and as you point out, ego is the enemy. So one last thought, Ryan. For the new year, you published an article for Medium, 
where you implore the audience to think extremely small when it comes to changing their habits. I think most people obviously, you know, they want it and they want it right now. They want big sweeping change. Why do you encourage people to think small? Well, there's actually a wonderful book out now called Atomic Habits by James Clear. And in in the book, he's talking about this idea that, like, look, if you want to read more, don't say, hey, I'm going to, you know, like, I'm going to read more this year. You would say, I'm going to read one page a day. Um, And to start with something very tangible, very measurable, but also very doable. Like, I've been been trying to... in Spanish in high school and in and a little bit in college, and I've been wanting to do it again. And I kept saying to myself, oh, I'm going to pick Spanish back up. But h- how am I actually going to do that? I could say I'm going to hire a tutor. I'm going to, no, like, I'm going to commit to doing a certain amount of it, a very manageable amount every day. And it just happens, you know, I, I do like 15 minutes, but I almost always get excited and end up doing more. And I think momentum is a very important underrated force in this world. And so when you can start small and exceed the goal, it feels like a huge success than if you tell yourself, oh, I'm going to read 500 books this year, and then you feel like a failure because you only read 100. Um, well, 100 is a great, a great number. What you should say is, hey, I'm going to read a page a day or 15 minutes a day or something that it's almost hard not to be able to do. And then that's how you create that momentum. And then that's how you build habits, I think. I'm not sure how that went for you, Ryan, but I feel like not only did time just fly, I feel like I could sit with you for another five hours and just kind of chop it up and talk about these things. That is such an amazing, amazing conversation. You had yourself another great, great year. It sounds like things are going extremely well. I'm curious, when are you coming back out to California? Uh, Anytime you'll have me, I'll come out. Well, that was great. I appreciate your time very much, Ryan. That was an awesome, awesome conversation. Let's be sure we pick it up again soon, and thank you very much. Really appreciate you. Really respect you. You got it. Thanks, man. Tis the season, right? TurboTax Live is a new way to do taxes. It combines tech with on-demand tax pros who can answer your questions and offer personalized advice. Real CPAs and EAs can help you with your return and find all the deductions that apply to you. Their tax experts are there when you need them so you can file with complete peace of mind. TurboTax Live's on-demand CPAs and EAs can not only answer your questions and offer advice, they can even review your return with you going over it line by line. So you can feel confident that you're getting the maximum refund. You've got real tax questions, so TurboTax Live has real tax professionals who can answer them for you. They have CPAs and EAs who are on demand, ready to give you advice and answer questions as you go. Their tax pros get to know you so they can offer personalized suggestions and find all the deductions that you deserve. So whether you're stuck on a specific question or need guidance working through your return, their tax experts can give you the confidence to ensure your return is done right. TurboTax Live with CPAs and EAs on demand. See details at TurboTax.com. Enormous thanks and big ups to Ryan Holiday for stopping by the pod and mixing things up. The term wise beyond his years gets thrown around quite a bit, but in his case, that is a major understatement. So I'm glad I ran Ryan down and we had a chance to chop it up long form. By now, you should know this podcast is diverse. We just went back to back with Maury Povich. 
in Ryan Holiday. So you never know exactly what you're going to get or who you're going to hear. You just know it's going to be great. So make sure you get yourself subscribed. You never have to look for this thing ever again. Once you do, it will find you every single Tuesday. Subscribe, review, share. Thanks so much for doing that in advance. And in return, I've got something for you. Your voicemails. I'll see you next week back in SoCal. Thanks for listening. I'm out. First new message. Happy dryuary. Said nobody ever. Message deleted. Next message. Jim Jiminy, Jim Jiminy, Jim Jim Jeru. What's up? It's Dr. Dave. Hawk, you got to be like the only person in the history of the world that actually looks dumber with classes. I mean, coming in a couple days after your wife gave birth. Fucking idiot. Message deleted. Next message. Hey, bro, man. I just caught my hair on fire trying to start a... I rolled a duba, man. <laughs> it was fucking orange when I looked in the mirror. Message deleted. Next message. Hey, Jim. Um, here in Austin, wondering, do you like Chick-fil-A? And if so, I really need to know what your favorite sauce is. If it's not Polynesian, I'm going to be disappointed. Message deleted. Next message. What a Rome. The vibe that you give off during Super Bowl week on Radio Row is just unlike any other week of the show, man. The smack-off is great. The year in review is great. The Tory Pines live show was great the other day. But, man, you chopping it up with current and former NFL players and media members, it's just it's unlike anything else, man. So keep up the great work. Monday was already a blast. Can't wait to hear the rest of the week. I'm looking forward to the game this weekend, man. Keep it up. Peace. Message saved. Next message. Hello, Jim Rome. I'm just calling to tell you that I'm fat. Very fat. I eat a lot, and I excrement a lot, and then I eat a lot again. Bye, Jim Rome. Message deleted. You have no more messages. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can waste another weekend doing the same old whatever, or... I can conquer it. I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. Any road. The steeper, the better. Because my all-new Santa Fe is available with H-Track all-wheel drive, so I can hit the trail without a worry in the world. Heck, with three rows and best-in-class rear cargo space, I can pack the whole family in with all our gear. We've got available dual wireless charging for our phones, so we'll never lose touch with civilization, and we won't lose touch with the primordial power of Mother Earth. So which is it? Waste the weekend or do something a little more epic? And conquer it in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey.